Welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, November 6th, 2022, we continue our series titled Romans, Gospel for All Time. Today's sermon, Watch Out, will be taught to us by Pastor Jeff Stevens out of Romans chapter 16, verses 17 through 20. But first, here's a quick recap of last week's sermon. The heart of Romans is, is that people are so flawed that God had to send his son to die for them or you and I would not be saved. He didn't die for buildings. He didn't die for land. He didn't die for a cause. He didn't die for a nation's politics. He died for people. That only people matter. We're called to live out our faith with people. And I want you to make a list of the people who have played a part in your life. People who have challenged you, have walked with you, have been there, have helped you become who God wants you to be. And go up them and tell them. Encourage them. Build them up. Challenge them and encourage them to keep going, keep serving, you know, keep making disciples, keep giving to the cause. And I want to be really clear about this. People do not get in the way of mission. There is no mission without people. Turn with me, if you would, to Romans 16. We're going to be in verses 17 through 20. Uh, Let me start by just reading it uh, itself. 17 through 20, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Powerful words that Paul, as he's winding down his letter to the church at Rome, um, he is giving us great warning here today. You'll see some some similar aspects that we saw in Romans 14, but yet uh, they are uh, radically different because of what he's going to do. He is, in fact, going to uh, give us uh, two commands and two reasons why. We'll spend the bulk of our time in verses 17 and 18. But I, as he goes through this, he's saying, I appeal, right? This uh, parakaleo is the Greek word that he uses here. It's used about 109 times or so in the, in the New Testament. Um, but he started using this in Romans 12.1. Um, so this will be the fourth time that he's talking about uh, grabbing our attention. He wants you to pay special attention. And of course, in Romans uh, 12.1, he says, I appeal to you, you know, brothers, by the mercies of God to present yourself as a living sacrifice. So he's continuing in this thought and that we ourselves should consider ourselves to be a sacrifice for his glory. He, in Romans uh, 12.8 use the term in an exhortation, um, uh, and and he's appealing through exhortation, and he wants us to have zeal. He wants us to have mercy. He wants to be filled with passion, uh, with cheer. He wants us to be unified. And then in 1530, he appeals to us by by the Lord Jesus, he says. And not only by the Lord Jesus, but but by the love of the Spirit that indwells us. But here, he's going to say, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out. He's going to say to watch out for those. And then he's going to say, avoid them. The those and the them, we're going to get into that and who and what they are. But 
I wanted to start by with just a question. How many of you have ever, you don't have to show your hands, but if you really want and, and rat yourself out, how many of you have ever watched a movie's end before you started the front end of the movie? And you start to realize, right, that if I know the end, especially on a, a suspense, you know, or a, a thriller movie, then I don't have to really go emotionally through the peaks and valleys because I already know what's going to happen. That's what Paul's going to do here today. He's going to talk to us about what it is that we have hope in, blessed assurance in, so that as we go through the peaks and valleys of life, we know that our purpose is to present ourselves through surrender. It's to him, and it's the purpose of offering ourselves as a living sacrifice. This is part of that renewing of the mind that he's doing for us, but he's gonna leave us with such encouragement and in hope. As I said, in 17, there are two commands. In 18, he's gonna give two reasons why. Um, I, this is only uh, a little over 100 words, but I gotta tell you, it's so packed full of information, um, uh, we will exhaust our time. But um, I wanna just, with that, I just want us to pray. So, our Father, our God, Lord, we come to you as your servants. You have brought us here today to gather with our brothers and sisters, to worship you, to adore you, uh, to grow in you. Help us, Lord, through your word to grow in grace. Help us to grow in a better and better understanding of your son every day at all times. It's in God's name we pray, amen. Okay, so point one here today is, is that truth-based unity sometimes will equal truth-based division. Truth-based unity can also involve truth-based division. There is, in fact, a time to divide, to separate, or to avoid, as he's going to say. But commandment number one that he gives in verse 17 is all about unity. Um, he wants to promote a unity amongst brothers and sisters. And he does this by first telling us to watch out for those who cause divisions. It seems contradictory. But he's wanting to express that the enemies are of unity are those who cause divisions, those who are causing the problem in the first place. He's gonna tell us to watch out for them. The them here is false teachers. And this is where the difficulty becomes because how do I tell the difference between a false teacher and a false teacher? You see, there is one who will in fact have an intellectual misspeak and there's one who is motivated and compelled to falsely communicate the truth of God's word because it reflects better upon them. It helps them. And we'll see that unfold here before us. But commandment two that he gives in verse 17 is just simply avoid them. Avoid the false teachers. Stay away from them. That's what makes these, how do I unify but yet avoid? How do those two things come together? He wants us to watch out for those who cause divisions. And the second one is, in fact, a call for division. When you spot such a divisive person, um, divide from him is what he's saying. It's, it's Paul's reference in verse 17, though, um, to doctrine. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine. And when he says the doctrine, he's referring to the doctrine that has been taught and preached by the Christ-appointed apostles. It's important for us to devote ourselves to the teaching of the Christ-appointed apostles. 
There's no Christ-appointed apostles here today. And so we don't speak in the infallible and inerrant, inspired word of God. We speak about the infallible and inerrant word of God that is in his scripture taught to us by the very apostles. So it's important for us to understand that. The issue here is not the same that was spoken of in Romans 14 when we talked about opinions that lead to quarrels, whether we should eat meat or vegetables only, and anything not done in faith is sin. Paul never in that context ever says, avoid the people who have different opinions than you. But here he's distinctly calling out to avoid such people who are in fact causing divisions. Romans 16 is a dramatically different approach than what we saw in Romans 14. 14 was about uniting strong and weak Christians to live together in a mutual respect and a greater understanding of each other. Here he's calling us to actually avoid. Paul could have said in this subject, well, when people are giving false teaching, you should just agree to disagree, but you can still get along. But that's not what he says. Instead, for the sake of unity, that is, truth-based unity. Truth-based unity sometimes calls for truth-based division because a person is contradicting the very words and teaching of the apostles. Avoid them, he says. In other words, when a person departs from the doctrine right, that the apostles taught, Paul sees that there's a greater good, or, uh, there's a greater threat in unity than the disunity that's caused by avoiding such people, right? But isolating false teachers or avoiding them is Paul's strategy for preserving unity in a Bible-based church. But the question still remains, what kind of false teaching? The kind of false teaching that is in fact motivated by self It's motivated not in service to God, but is in fact motivated by personal desire. Some would call that idolatry. Because he says in verse 18, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ. So they're not here to serve and sacrifice for Jesus. But instead, their own appetites. This term appetites uh, uh, means uh, by their belly that they're, they're craving their own desires. And the way that they do this is by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. We'll get to that. But he says, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Probably illustratively, I can say, if you've ever been to the airport and you've gone through TSA and you've seen those guys walking their dog, their dog-sniffing dog for drugs or bombs or whatever they're sniffing for, those dogs, right, are rather invasive. They're gonna take their nose and nuzzle up really close to you and your bags and everything else. That's not what Paul's saying here, right? Because you know that that dog, when he goes home and the neighbor's kids that come over to pet him, he greets them the same way he greets you at the airport. What do you got hiding here? This is not the way we greet people at the front door of the church. Tell me what you believe. Tell me now. It needs to be consistent with God's word or you must leave. This isn't our approach. And it's not actually what Paul is saying here. 
But yet, we see sometimes in our personal lives, because I can go and log on to social media anytime I want, and I can see brothers and sisters eviscerating people online because someone disagrees with them. You should avoid them, not engage them, especially if they're teaching words that are not consistent with what Paul and the other apostles taught. We have to have balance here. Right? We remember, we have to remember that we were commanded, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles, right? And it's about this doctrine that we've been taught by the Christ-appointed apostles. But this is not the main thing that we do as followers. We don't greet people at the door this way. However, vigilance needs to be necessary. Vigilance over error in teaching must be necessary. But I have to tell you, joy in truth is what's supreme. We need to focus upon the truth of God's word, not those who are teaching it falsely. It's why I'm not going to be up here today giving you a list of names of people who I think falsely communicate the the apostles' teaching. They don't attend here that I'm aware of. If they did, we would avoid them. And I'm going to get into more of that. But Paul puts his reasons for this doctrinal standard um, and why and where we can depart from people in perspective. He did this in Romans 6, 17. He calls it the standard of teaching. He says, you have become obedient from the heart to, to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Or in 2 Timothy He put it this way in 2 Timothy 1, 13 and 14. He says, he calls it the pattern of sound words. And he calls it the good deposit, the word of God. Follow, he says, the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me, Paul. In the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. He says, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Not only is the Holy Spirit the greatest deposit, but the good deposit is the very word of God, the law of God that is written upon the hearts of all mankind. It's Acts 20 where he clarifies this, where where the word clarifies it. It says in Acts 20, 27, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. It's important that we don't just take one little aspect of scripture and make it our entire doctrine. It's more important that we realize that there's a lot of words that are being said about any one particular issue. In fact, we call that study systematic theology. We call it a theology where I understand what does all of God's word say about this one particular subject. It's important for us to understand his word and to understand it in the context of its whole counsel. Paul here was dealing predominantly with a couple of main heresies that he was looking at in the Roman church. And it was just simply the Judaizers and the antinomians, which are fancy ways of saying legalists and licensed people. Remember Pastor Bob spoke last week about the church coming together in these home churches where you'd have a blend of both Jews and Gentiles. You'd have strong opinions that would lead to quarrels in those gatherings. But Paul here is warning about those who are insistently non-repentant about holding to a doctrine that is not what the apostles are teaching. Legalism is one of them. This is trusting in one's own righteousness or in anything else, right, aside from the person of Jesus Christ, and you're doing this to win approval or acceptance with the one true God. 
Brothers and sisters, there is no way for you to win or earn approval from the one true God. Let me just set this clear. Jesus Christ not only loves you, he likes you. And nothing can change that. He said that in Romans 8. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. But yet we go out on our day and we want to be seen as more holy. We perform like we're the ones that are holy. Or we pretend that we're not sinners at all. This is where our counterpart of heresy comes in. Antinomianism, which is just a fancy word to saying no law. It's saying that it's license. This is the belief that Christians are not bound by God's law, but are in fact free to sin as they please. Paul addressed this. He said we don't sin all the more so that grace can abound. We're not set free to do anything we please. It's important that we understand that Jesus rescued us from not only the guilt of sin, but he gave you the Holy Spirit to give you power to obey. The only problem left is a battle that's going on between your desire and the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul said in Romans 7, I do the very thing that I do not want to do. There's always a battle with desire. But in addition to these two heresies, we experience many others today. In fact, I'll give you a list of a few that are very common, very popular today, and they're so subtle that most people don't even notice them. And if you want an exhaustive list of heresies that you should keep an eye out for, email me at jeffs at highlandschurch.org and I'll send you an exhaustive list. You can click on it and see the history of it, where it came from, why it's so, and what the problem with it is. Because it's important that we go back to that early Christian church and we understand what the Christ-appointed apostles were in fact teaching. But probably one of the most common today that we see is progressive Christianity. Progressive Christianity is this idea, it's postmodern. it's talking about the world that we're in today and its theological approach is a revisionist view of history. Sounds common, right? How do I change what scripture says so that it fits and justifies what I'm doing? It's important for us to understand that the word of God is not progressing. It is living, but it's not changing. Our God is an immutable God. He does not change, and we should be thankful for that. From the beginning of time, God never had wheels on his lighthouse. He isn't turning things around and saying, boy, I didn't see that coming. I better shore things up a different way. He's been unfolding his plan before us since the beginning of time. And we have to be centered on this truth that is foundational and is a light to the world. Another one is what's called modalism. Modalism is just this idea that God has worked in modes. He's come in three different times, right? It's the belief that the members of the Trinity are not three distinct persons, but three different aspects of the same person, just manifested differently. The problem with this thought line is it breaks down the ultimate historical Trinitarian viewpoint that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are three distinct persons with one nature. Not one purpose, but one nature. There are churches, even within our own community, that teach that they have a purpose that is the same, not the nature. It's critically important that we understand what that teaching means. 
that the one God manifested himself differently in the Old Testament than he did in the New Testament is simply heretical. He is one God who manifests himself in three distinct persons. And there's a slight nuance there. If you want to know more, just give me a call. The third one is probably what's uh, more common today, and it's, it's the term kenosis. Kenosis is the belief that Jesus ceased to be divine while he was on earth. It's a manipulation of Philippians that says that he considered equality with God not something to be grasped, and the person takes it to an extreme where they say, you see, Jesus was never God while walking on the earth. That, too, is heresy. You cannot mix or merge Jesus. You can't separate or divide Jesus. There is, in fact, 100% God and 100% human. This is critical to understanding the overall orthodoxy of Christianity. And it is a subtle nuance that is taught and is very common amongst some of the more popular larger churches in the world. But there's a pattern here of sound doctrine, right? It is the essentials that we need to determine, not the secondary or the tertiary positions. But the primary aspect of the apostles' teaching is the history of redemption and as well the nature and the condition of humanity. Man is not mortally wounded. Man is dead in his trespasses and is in need of a savior. It's critically important that we understand that that redemption comes from God. It is not about man reaching to God. That's all other religions that are heretical. This is about Jesus Christ reaching to you. And we see this when we look at God's word in its, in its totality through the nature and the work of Christ through the nature and the work of the Holy Spirit, and through the nature and the work of God the Father. Everything you have here today is because the God the Father gave it to you. Everything got to you via the Holy Spirit, and everything, everything is to the glory of Jesus Christ. This is about our devotion, our devotion to what the apostles taught. Even Acts 2, 42 through 47, the four pillars of the early church was that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to fellowship, and to prayer. These are the four functional pillars of a church. We are devoted to teaching the word of God, word by word. It's critically important that we do that because it helps us as pastors and leaders within the church not speaking from the inspired and Holy Spirit within me, but speaking from the standpoint that the inspired and inerrant word of God tells me what it says in clear words. And on these essentials, it's important for us to understand. This is why we teach word for word because we're always gonna hit parts in scripture that frankly, none of us want to stand up here and preach. Not because we're ashamed of the gospel, but because we fear and tremble at the accuracy of communicating what does it say. I remember when I got to the point I was preaching in Romans 9 through this series. I was sitting down here in the front and Pastor Thomas in his kindness and his grace could tell that I, that I wasn't right. And he came to me and he looked at me and he says, brother, he says, are you okay? And I looked at him with tears in my eyes and I said, no, I'm not okay at all. I'm struggling here. I said, I'm about to stand before this congregation and I want to be accurate to what the word of God says. I want to be able to communicate why does Jacob loved and why is Esau hated? It's not a message that anyone wants to come and bring, but God so inspired it and put it in his word that we have to communicate it. 
Otherwise, we'd just go around all the tough subjects because we're human. The elders and pastors have been working for a couple years now on what we call a church practice series where we're breaking down some of the common aspects of things like marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And what does the Bible teach on this subject? We're focusing, though, on the things that are essential, not secondary issues or tertiary issues. If you want a good book to read, it's written by a man by the name of Gavin Ortland. Uh, Pastor Bob gave it to all of us. It's, uh, it's, the book is called Finding the Right Hills to Die On. And he does an excellent job of peeling apart those things that are essential versus things that are non-essential, things that we, we can agree to disagree on versus things that we would actually avoid each other over. But Romans 12, we have to be consistent in the whole counsel of God's word. Romans 12 told us, bless those who curse you in verse 14. And in verse 18, he said, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So even in your avoiding of people, I cannot do anything but bless them, and I can't, and I can't try to strive for a non-peaceable relationship. I have to use the whole counsel of God's word. So avoiding them doesn't mean stop caring about them. Avoiding them doesn't mean stop praying for them. Avoiding them doesn't even necessarily mean stop talking to them. Paul commands to the words avoid them, and it is not that there should be no contact at all, but rather you are to avoid the kind of contact that communicates I agree with your sin. This is a wrestling match for a lot of you when you call me and ask, can I go to this person's wedding? This will be a matter of conscience for you. But your conscience can never contradict the commands of God's word and the whole counsel of it. It can never dismiss the principles behind God's word. It's important for you to make these decisions. In fact, Paul warns about it in another way. In 1 Corinthians 5.11, he says, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, so another brother or sister in Christ, if he or she is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, is a reviler, I love that word, it, means, it just means verbal abuser, or swindler or drunkard, not even to eat with such one, avoid them. Now you read that list, I hope you recognize that all of you are on it. As am I. So there has to be a motivation behind this that would indicate why I would then choose to avoid a person if in fact your motivation is to cause division or to be an obstacle from what the apostles have taught us. It's one thing to have an intellectual misspeak. It's another thing to know that what you're saying contradicts the word of God, but I'm gonna say it anyways because then people will like me. You're searching for someone to tickle your ears. You're not searching for Jesus Christ. Verse 18, right, though, he gives us two reasons. He says, for such persons, right, that is the persons who depart from doctrine, do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ but instead they serve their own appetites and they do this by their smooth talk and their flattery. They deceive the hearts of the naive. I'll look at the second point first in 18b, smooth talk and flattery. Uh, they deceive the hearts of the, knee, uh, the naive. This is why we have a discipleship program. This is why we want to be discipling people. All of us are naive. I'm naive. It's important for us to understand that when Paul wrote Philippians, which was, which was towards the tail end of his life, he said, I haven't arrived. 
So if the guy who wrote the vast majority of the New Testament was at the end of his life and he's still feeling he hasn't yet come to full maturity, then I'm pretty sure I'm a little short of that myself. It's important for us to surround ourselves with people who can point us to the truth. Our United States Treasury does this thing where they train their agents in counterfeit money. They don't study counterfeit money to understand what money is. They lock these men and these women in a vault filled with with true cash. So they smell it, they breathe it, they touch it. They can even taste it if they so want to, although that probably has a little bit of germ on it. But you start to realize, right, that they're immersing themselves in the real thing so that when the false thing touches their fingertips, they immediately know it's counterfeit. You must immerse yourself into the word of God. You must test everything that's said from this pulpit, whether me, Bob, or Thomas, or anyone. You do not take our word, you verify it, you validate it based upon what God's word says, period. It's important for us to know that there can, in fact, be smooth talk, whether it is through an an intellectual misspeak or whether it is intentional to plug oneself. Secondly, In 18a, Paul says, such persons, the false teachers, do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. Appetites here means literally their belly. Think about it as hunger pains. Think of it as a desire to serve the pain that I'm feeling, and I'm just, I'll eat anything. I just, it doesn't matter. I just want to eat something. This is what they're doing. It's idolatry. We can't violate commandments two through 10 unless we violate commandment number one. Thou shalt have no other God but the one true God. We do this sometimes through um, approval or control. And these things will default into um, coping mechanisms for us where I pursue my idol of comfort or my idol of pleasure. The false teacher is consumed by these things. He's saying watch out for these kinds of teachers. And the watch out there means to be vigilant In fact, point two is be experts in good and leave no footing for evil. That's what verse 19 is about. He says this because he wants us to be vigilant, to keep careful watch for possible danger or possible difficulties in life. Just like all the movies that we watch the end to first and then we get into it, if I know what the end is gonna be, then I don't typically buy in emotionally to all the peaks and valleys that the movie's taking me through because I know the ending. I trust the ending. It's gonna be the same no matter what, so there's no reason to get emotionally involved. But because false teachers are not always easy to spot with their smooth talk and their, their flattery, right? The word flattery just means blessing. They use blessings. This is what makes them so difficult to spot because they're kind, gracious people. But their motivation is their own appetite. So in verse 19, Paul encourages the church. He says, your obedience is known to all, so I rejoice over you. Remember, Paul had not founded this church. Paul's actually never even been there yet. He was worried that he'd be building on another man's foundation, probably Peter. And so he hadn't gone there yet. He was simply, though, joyful over the reputation of the church that they walked in obedience to Jesus. So in 19b, he says, I want you to be wise as to what is good, and I also want you to be innocent as to what is evil. 
Paul said something similar in 1 Corinthians 14. He says, brothers, do not be uh, children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. Or in Matthew 10, verse 16, he says, behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. That's what Monday through Friday looks like, right? So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. He's saying be like a child in the sense, in one sense, don't even have a beginning for evil. Don't fall for the lures and the temptations. Uh, a theologian post-World uh, War II, J.B. Phillips, I love his paraphrase of Romans 16, 19. He says, I want to see you as experts in good, and I don't even want you to become beginners in evil. He's telling us as people who are either young in our faith, in our maturity, or young in our age, to beware. He's warning us. It's the question of humanity. Why do we feel the need to experiment with things? Things that we know are in fact wrong. Whether you're young or old in your experimentation with sex or drugs or alcohol, your purpose is simple. Everyone has the same purpose in this room. Your purpose is to live to the glory of Jesus Christ. You are not a knucklehead who doesn't know that certain things are in fact wrong, but yet you feel you have to touch the hot pots of life so that you can grow in your experience. This is a lie right from the devil. You don't have to go touch the hot pots of life. You can actually take the experience of those who have made the mistake. It's those older people. Typically, it was your parents saying, you shouldn't do that, you shouldn't do that. Oh, come here, give me a hug, honey. You did that. That's, right? And that's what we do. We keep repeating the same process over and over again. And what we do for evil, God means for good. That doesn't give us permission and license to do anything we want. But Paul is going to encourage us here in the third point. He's going to talk about the triumph of the church over Satan in verse 20. He says it this way. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Are you picking up on that? We always think about Christ as the one that was promised to come, that he would crush the head of the serpent and it would bruise his heel. But listen to what Paul's saying here. He's saying that soon crush Satan under your feet. I don't think that Paul is making a reference to a current event that was going on 2,000 years ago. He's making a reference to the last great events that are in the future. It's when Satan is finally crushed and he's put into the pit in Revelation 20, verses two and three, and the lake of fire in Revelation 20, verse 10. It's a warning not to be friends with evil because evil is going to lose. And it's an encouragement for you to stay vigilant against the false teaching because the father of all lies will one day be destroyed. You cannot live your life in the prince of darkness' camp and the prince of peace. You must stop straddling the fence of life. You must learn to avoid those who are trying to lure you away. If we go back to the larger picture in Genesis 3.15, God promised that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. He says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Listen, Jesus is known to come to fulfill the promise 
Because when we look at the whole counsel of God's word, 1 John 3, 8 says it abundantly clear. It says the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. It doesn't get any clearer. He is our commander in chief in our everyday battle. The peaks and valleys of those things that we go through. We know that Satan, that the destroying of Satan can be summed up in three stages. One is already done. One is Satan has been decisively defeated in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That battle has been won. The second one is that Satan is being defeated now by Christ through the Christian church who speak the very word of God and put on the whole armor of God in the everyday battle. And the third one that is coming is the hope that we fight this battle with. Not my wish that things will do, but I've seen the end of the movie. I know how this ends because his word is faithful. He does not change. And our entire hope is in that fact. It is understanding that the hope, not the wish, that Satan will finally be vanquished, he'll be thrown into the lake of fire, and he will never deceive or torment the world again. God wins. But if you're anything like Isaiah in Isaiah 6, where you've just signed up for this battle, this everyday battle that you're going through, you might be like Isaiah and get to the point where you mutter the words, how long? But how long? I mean, it's been 2,000 years. 2,000 years. Even before that, the psalmist in Psalm 7410 says, how long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Paul's answer to this is the word soon. Soon. When we start to understand what this means, verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. What does that mean? It means that God is using his bride, the church, as the one people in Christ to crush the head of the serpent while Christ and his bride are being bruised because the battle is real. But even 2,000 years ago, Paul encouraged us in Romans 13. Verse 12, you remember this, I preached on it. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. They will know you by the way you love. Even when you're avoiding someone, you love them. You don't condemn them. We get that so wrong. We think to ourselves, even though scripture abundantly tells us Jesus Christ did not come to this world to condemn it, but to save it. And we immediately say, oh yeah, he didn't come to condemn it, but he gave it to me. It's my job. I'm going to condemn it. That's not the type of avoidance we're talking about here. How are we to understand the statement in the New Testament that the coming Christ and the triumph of his appearing will be soon? It's imminent. Our hope is that it's today, but we are preparing as if it's a thousand years from now. When we look at the full counsel of God's word on this subject, the New Testament addresses this issue directly in 2 Peter chapter 3. It says in 3, uh, in 
2 Peter 3, 3 and 4, it says, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. And they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. They're gonna try and convince you that Jesus is not coming. They're gonna tell you that he wasn't God. They're gonna tell you that he's gonna manifest himself in a different person, but it'll still be the same God. They're gonna lie to you and deceive you. They're gonna tell you that your works is what's, how you're gonna earn your righteousness. Or they're gonna tell you you can do anything you want because it's just grace. Don't be lured and enticed by those people. But recognize this, right? In 2,000 years ago, Peter also said this in 2 Peter 3, verses eight and nine. He says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. Brothers and sisters, it's only been two days since this was written. I got a spoiler alert for you, God wins, Satan loses. And your objective is to be found faithful to God, not faithful to the false teachers. Have you ever watched the end of a movie first? Because you just did. There's not as much to worry about in life if you know the end. It's an encouragement that this good doctrine leads us to doxology. It leads us to worship. Next week, as we finish our time in Romans, Thomas will end on doxology. He'll end on worship. He's going to explain to us how this compels us to worship and follow this God with great hope and anticipation that no matter how difficult the situation is, no matter how hard the battle is, I will put my hope, my trust, my faith in the person of Jesus Christ. I cannot be overcome, overbought. I cannot be taken away because I am a disciple. I am a follower of the person of Jesus Christ and I will lift my life into the world words that the apostles gave us, and that's how you do it. Amen? Let's stand together. Let's worship this God with our whole heart for the incredible blessings that he gives us. I hope you are encouraged because he is for you. Nothing can separate you from the love of this God as you enter into the battle of life. You know the ending. God wins, Satan loses. Walk right into the battlefield with all the confidence in the world and avoid the people who will direct you away from it. For the battle is real. If you need prayer, our team is down here. Don't cheat them out of bearing your burden with you to walk and stand in the gap. Come and pray, come and seek solace. And if you don't do that, then minister to one another. Love each other or we will be spending eternity with each other. To God be the glory, amen? I love you guys, you guys have a great week.